namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa bhutang tamang sankhang namasami Uh, welcome once again to this um, uh, weekly uh, webcast, uh, Dhamma Reflections. Those who are gathered here at Amravati, those who are scattered around the country, around the world. So uh, another week has gone by. Uh, uh, I was considering some of the, the, the questions and also the um, looking at the, uh, the news around the world and the uh, sort of many of the considerations, um, sort of local and remote. And uh, one of the, the things that, that came to mind uh, and comes up in the, the questions is about uh, how we do things, the, um, the way we go about achieving uh, what, we, what we're interested to do, to, to bring about changes in the world, changes in our own life, and changes in the, uh, the, uh, the world around us. So there's a lot, a lot of focus particularly uh, on that, not just in terms of spiritual training, the, the way of, our, of life, say, working with our minds, but also um, the, uh, the way of changing things in the family, in the workplace, in society, in the, the way that we, we run our countries, the way that we relate to each other as human beings. So the, uh, 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 the primary structure that I would say, from my, uh, my understanding that uh, we have in the teachings, is what's called the four idipada, or the four bases of success. So these uh, are talked about both in terms of how to bring about the fulfillment of spiritual aspirations, how to succeed in our spiritual work, the work of training the heart and uh, guiding uh, the, the heart to awakening towards liberation. But also it refers to uh, practical tasks, like uh, when one example in the suttas that, uh, uh, is there in a dialogue between Ananda and a Brahmin uh, called Unaba. He talks about it in terms of, of the, uh, uh, the success of going for a walk in the park, you know, that uh, it doesn't have to be with an exalted spiritual goal. It's really about how we go about succeeding in any kind of task we undertake or anything that we, we see as worth doing in our lives and worth doing in the world. So I felt this might be uh, useful, helpful to consider. You know, if, we, if we see there are changes uh, that uh, are useful in our life, or in, our, in our family, in our work, or in, and in the world around us, how do we go about... Uh, uh, putting, uh, uh, say, those changes into effect. How do we how do, we do that? So the, the first of these four is chanda. So chanda sometimes is translated as desire. Uh, it can also be interest, zeal, uh, enthusiasm. It's the uh, ability of the mind to, say, uh, be focused on a particular activity and that sense of, yes, yeah, uh, to, uh, say, engage the attention with, with something, with a, a quality of, of commitment. So chanda, uh, it can be with a, a wholesome object like dhamma chanda, enthusiasm for the dhamma or delight in the dhamma. 
uh, inclination towards realizing Dhamma. It can be um, uh, very worldly. It can be um, uh, <coughs> karma the desire for sense pleasure. Yeah? So it can be uh, wholesome. It can be unwholesome. It, it can be uh, it can be neutral. So it's a it's a very broad term. So chanda is the first thing. So we need to be interested. We need to be interested to to make uh, some change. We need to be interested in that, uh, bringing about that particular, uh, say, um, transformation within our own lives or in the in the world around us. So chanda is is the first one. We need to be interested. The second is virya which means uh, if you just have a bright idea, you're kind of interested to make a change, but you don't do anything about it. You just sit on your sofa or you sit on your meditation cushion and say, yeah, it's a great idea, and don't engage with it, don't follow it through, then uh, that doesn't lead to success. It doesn't lead to any kind of, uh, say, uh, effective fruition of that idea or that interest, that, uh, that, say, initiative. So there's chanda, interest, and then virya, applying energy. And then the third one is chitta. So in this respect, chitta just means the heart or the mind. In this respect, it means thinking things through. Uh, so that uh, in, in many respects, and the way I, I tend to describe the, the idipada when it comes up in, in, uh, in terms of giving advice on meditation or in terms of dhamma practice, I usually say that these first three, they, they come together. So you need to be interested, you need to apply energy, and, the, and then you need to think about what it is that you want to do. Okay, I want to see this change happening, I want to, to work with my mind, I want to let go of sense desire, I want to let go of ill will and jealousy, I want to cultivate the wholesome qualities. Okay, I'm interested to do that, I want to put energy into it. Now, how do I go about doing that? What are the things that get in the way? Why is this a powerful habit for me? Where is this coming from? Uh, What have I tried in the past? What has worked in the past? What has not worked in the past? Uh, uh, So that that uh, chitta in this respect, it means all the aspects of wise reflection, consideration, remembering the past, looking at past causes, uh, looking into the the future, saying, okay, uh, what's likely to be the result if I do it this way, if I do it that way, where's, where's, where's it going to go, how's it going to take shape? And so that it is a, uh, the, uh, an area of consideration, thinking things through. So really those, those first three, uh, uh, they work together in terms of how we set about bringing changes into our life or into the world around us, into the, uh, into the, the workplace, into the political arena, the, the, the way we structure our, our living situation or the, 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 the physical world around us, whether it's a building project or a meditation practice or, uh, say, um, bringing uh, new laws into, into existence which, say, benefit people or uh, you know, with the, the COVID-19 uh, lockdown, the continual changing of, of protocols, okay, what's the disease doing now? Can we allow this? Do we have to be tighter over there? And, and um, uh, what do we do about this new thing that's just popped up that nobody thought of before? So that uh, uh, we are um, using those three, there's interest, there's energy, and, and, and wise reflection or contemplation, thinking things through. So those are all necessary uh, aspects. If we want to do something, uh, whether it's uh, wholesome, unwholesome, uh, neutral, whether it's worldly or spiritual, 
whether it's very local just within our own mind or whether it's uh, in the family or whether it's uh, in terms of political change then those three need to 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 work together and if uh, if any of those is missing it, things are not going to be successful you're not going to arrive at a, a very uh, beneficial result but if uh, uh, this is as the, the buddha describes it if those uh, elements are present then there is a a, a good possibility that this will lead to a beneficial result. The fourth of the four is called vimanksa, and I talk about this often because it's not a quality that's, say, addressed very frequently in Buddhist teachings or sometimes uh, is missed out altogether in terms of meditation practice and, and also just in terms of, uh, say, skillful use of Dhamma practice in our lives, but I feel it's almost the, the most important of the of the four because it's the uh, the active contemplation of the results of what you've done. Okay, having say uh, been you're enthusiastic, you're interested, you're applying energy, you've thought it through. What's the result? Where, where did it go? You had a great idea, you put energy into it. Did it work? Uh, what was what was the effect? Uh, so vimangsa is setting the direction for the future, learning from how things have been, and then it's like the the ongoing feedback system, so that you are learning as you go along, uh, that <coughs> whether the effort that you're making and the the the, the uh, say the degree to which you've thought things through. Is it is it going in the right direction? Uh, is it uh, is it coming to the kind of result that you wanted? Is is something else the uh, the result? Is it going in a direction that you don't want or that you don't expect or you um, you find is is harmful or obstructive, destructive? So that these uh, these four qualities, uh, I feel that when when we uh, really bring those to mind and uh, apply those uh, then the uh, any kind of work that we're doing any kind of interest or any any kind of project any kind of goal that we have whether it's um, establishing more uh, so skillful structures to look after the pandemic whether it's changing the laws to uh, say uh, dispel racism and uh, inequalities in society whether it's about how to restructure your home so that uh, things will be more convenient and, and more comfortable whether it's about working with your mind in meditation how to deal with sense desire or how to deal with laziness or ill will how to deal with your grudges or your uh, your feelings of loneliness or whatever it might be that <clears throat> if we are say bringing attention to, uh, in this way uh, then we can arrive at, at success. There can be, say, the, the effort that is made can lead to beneficial results. You know, sometimes the, um, the Buddha's teaching is, is talked about in terms of a, a, a you know, journey without a goal, or, or like Krishnamurti's phrase, uh, truth is a pathless land. But I feel that uh, uh, even though it might seem a bit of worldly or a bit limited, uh, I think it's uh, uh, in terms of Buddhist practice. I think it's it's helpful to to see that it's not illegal or inappropriate or dualistic to to have a goal. <laughs> we we talk about the four noble truths. The the, uh, uh, the the four noble truths they have a purpose. They have a goal. So like the the fourth noble truth is dukkha niroda gamini patipada. The practice. The way of practice, uh, the path that leads to the end of dukkha, 
it's a mugger, it's a path. A path is, is only a path if you travel down it. If, you don't, if no being walks along it, it's not a path. It's just a, a patch of ground. It's just a, a particular piece of the, the, the earth or, or the, the, you know, the, uh, the, the kind of a trail that's, that uh, some being can follow. But what makes it a path is that sense of uh, 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 maybe it can seem worldly, but it, it's also it's heading from one place to another. It's heading from suffering to not suffering. It's heading from uh, confusion, agitation, alienation to peace and to freedom. So that um, if one's understanding that, uh, uh, say, you're, you're using language, you're using terminology as a skillful means, then uh, I don't think it's, it's harmful or obstructive or dualistic or, or spiritually immature to be thinking in terms of uh, a path and a goal. <laughs> it's a, it's a, say, the language that the, the Buddha uses, and I think in terms of our human life, it's, it's quite uh, skillful and appropriate to be, to be thinking in these terms. And so that you might think, well, it sounds very worldly to talk in terms of success. You know, surely the Dhamma is here and now, and, and uh, how, is, how is this not perfect and pure? All, uh, already but if, if we truly knew that <laughs> if the heart was awake to that uh, in this moment then uh, they uh, that would be an understanding that these kind of terms are only convenient fictions that they they are only sort of uh, conceptual structures that are used for a particular purpose even someone who's fully enlightened like the buddha uh, he he did a lot of stuff <laughs> he brought the sangha into being he carried out a, a a huge amount of teaching. He was extraordinarily creative and inventive. He used those idipada, those four bases of success, very actively. Uh, and his effort in teaching was to have the effect of enabling beings to, to be liberated. There was a, a path and a goal. He was not deluded about it. He was, uh, uh, he was uh, understanding what he was doing. He wasn't seeing it in a dualistic way, but there was definitely work being done with a particular aim in mind. So I don't think we need to be uh, afraid or shy of that or think of that in any kind of, of a critical way, but rather seeing that this is a, a skillful means. If we see that, say, working with our own meditation practice to, to say, free the heart from its obscurations, to change the family, the uh, structures within the family to do things in a more skillful way, to work with the disease, to change the structures that are used in order to contain and and help uh, cure the disease to the degree possible, to change the, the structures or laws of society to make it more fair and just and equitable for, uh, for everybody. That um, if one is recognizing these are upaya, these are skillful means, then it's, uh, it's I say, actually beneficial, it's, it's really liberating and helpful to be using those kind of forms and structures because uh, the, the conventions that they bring into being, the changes that they make, have genuine, skillful, wholesome, uh, liberating impacts upon the lives of, of, uh, of other beings and of ourselves. So going to this, uh, this week's Questions. So the, there are some about um, these idipadas. So I'll start with uh, with those. So, first one: 
In your essay, that's a, 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 a paper that was uh, published on the website about, about effort <laughs> uh, recently. In your essay, you have described tevija, that's the, the three knowledges, to obtain the pathway as the Buddha inspired. What are these three knowledges? So tevija is T-E-V-I-J-J-A, tevija. And uh, the, the first question is, what are the, the three knowledges that are referred to? Um, so in, uh, in the, um, the Buddha's teaching, the three knowledges that he, he, he describes uh, he, uh, that uh, he awoke to, the first one is uh, his uh, many, manifold past lives. So the first knowledge was to see into the, the, the long succession of lives that he had had and the relationship between those different lives um, in the succession of his uh, spiritual uh, evolution. The second knowledge was the lives uh, of other beings and how other beings are born and pass away and, uh, and the, the trajectory of other beings' lives. Uh, say they follow the, uh, the, the, um, the uh, laws of cause and effect uh, according to their actions. Uh, and the third uh, knowledge, the third vija, is um, the knowledge of his own deliverance, his own liberation. So that's liberation through uh, the through the heart, cheta vimuti and panya vimuti, liberation through wisdom. So that's what he means in terms of the, the three knowledges. Um, and, uh, also there's a follow-up question from the same person that says, uh, thank you for your great service and live stream meditation and Q&A, especially for us who live very far from the temple and are unable to attend every week. Uh, in the past when there was no restrictions and possibly in the future. Uh, could you explain Tevija? Yeah, I just did that, hopefully. As I try to understand it when I chant the word every day, worshipping the Lord Buddha in the phrase Vija Charana Sampano. So um, there, there's a, a, a little complexity to that, so that in the term Tevija, or the three true knowledges that the Buddha uses, he's like he does it in many situations, he's... Uh, kind of riffing on a standard that was already existent um, so that uh, he uh, was aware within the Vedic system of what they call the three Vedas or the triple Veda. Um, and so that uh, where that would be something that a Brahmin priest would be praised for, that they, they are able to recite the Vedas or they, have the, they are fully accomplished in the triple Veda. So that would be like a spiritual skill that a, a Brahmin priest or a, a, a yogi would be sort of uh, well known for, would they take as a, a spiritual accomplishment. And so, um, and those three, those three knowledges, or those, uh, the triple Veda, and I, I, my, under, my understanding is that the word Veda in Sanskrit is related to Vija in, in Pali. And um, those three, uh, Veda, uh, three Vedas are the, uh, I, and I looked this up, <laughs> so don't, uh, don't be too impressed, I looked this up uh, this afternoon. So the three Vedas that the, the, the triple Veda refers to is um, the, uh, the Rig Veda, which means knowledge of the verses. Uh, then the second one is the Yajur Veda, knowledge of the sacrifices. And then the third one is Sama Veda, knowledge of the chants. 
so that um, the, uh, someone who is accomplished in the Triple Veda will be able to recite all those Vedic teachings, like the, the, the Rig Veda, so they'd be able to recite the verses, they would know the sacrifices, they'd know the ceremonies, and, and they'd be able to, um, to recite all of the, the, the prayers that go along with that. So the Buddha is kind of taking that theme and, uh, sort of, uh, and sort of putting his own twist on it. And so he did this many, many times. Uh, like when he was talking with the uh, the, the former fire worshippers who had become his disciples, uh, and he gave the, what's called the fire sermon, the, um, the 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 focus of their spiritual life would be on on fire, on keeping uh, sacrificial fires alive, and then the Buddha used the um, the symbol uh, the symbolism of fire as say uh, a theme but it took it in the opposite direction rather than keeping the fire alight <laughs> to to keep the uh, the, the flame uh, of a sort of spiritual fire alight he talked about letting the flames go out letting the fire die down so the, the he talks about the fires of raga dosa and moha of, of passion of aversion and delusion letting the fires go out so he's he's somewhat doing the same thing here with the 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 Tevija. So his three knowledges are really different from the three knowledges of a, or, or the three Vedas of a Brahmin. So his his three knowledges. It's Vija means uh, awareness or knowledge or knowing. So, but he's talking about uh, talking about it really as spiritual accomplishment, realization of the fundamental nature of reality, and and also the the profound and. and intricate nature of his own experience, his own many past lives and how they all work together, the lives and comings and goings of other beings, and then the, the, the knowledge of the complete deliverance of the heart. So he's using a similar term, but putting very much his own spin on it. So then in the word, uh, the phrase vijja charana sampano, then that's using the word vijja in a slightly broader way, it's the same word in the Pali, V-I-J-J-A with a bar on top, uh, Vijja, a long A. Uh, Vijja Charana Sampano means um, someone who is, uh, say, impeccable in, in conduct and understanding or perfect in knowledge and conduct. So uh, it's, um, it's a, say, a slightly broader term. It's not just those three knowledges of, a, of an Arahant, one who's uh, awakened and had those those kind of profound insights into the the, the um, past lives and such like, or the lives of other beings, but it's uh, it's using the, the term slightly more broadly, I would say, as uh, a, a, the quality of awareness, awakened awareness itself. So vijja charana sampano, so perfect in knowledge and conduct, perfect in conduct and understanding. And it's a, a way of, it's one of the, the qualities of a, of a Buddha, uh, one who is fully awake, and that it's, in a sense, uh, acknowledging how awareness and conduct are sort of two sides of the same thing, like the, the, the front and the back of the, of the same hand. So that um, awareness might seem very different from conduct, conduct might seem very different from, uh, from awareness, but in the, the quality of the Buddha, we have, uh, say, both of those uh, aspects are fully perfected or fully purified. So the mind is totally awake, totally transcendent, totally uh, unattached and unidentified with the phenomenal world, with see, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, feeling, thought, and so on. It's completely transcendent. The vijja is the transcendent awakened awareness. It's completely um, so gone, as it were. It, it, it's a... Um, 
uh, say, completely unattached and unlimited by the sense world and uh, thought and feeling and such like. And then the charana is the quality of presence, the, the, that say, the mind is perfectly attuned to sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thought, is perfectly, uh, say, uh, in harmony with the whole of the, the sense world and uh, and it also guides action and speech so that it's always wholesome, it's always say, uh, harmless, so that it's said that uh, an enlightened being cannot deliberately tell a lie. Uh, an enlightened being like the Buddha cannot deliberately take the life of a, another being. It's, it's, it's physically impossible. Um, and so that the charana and the vicha, the conduct and the knowledge, are, say, uh, are both aspects of that Buddha quality. And so there is, uh, if you like to use more of the Christian terminology, there is the immanence and transcendence, the perfect presence of charana, the mind totally attuned to every aspect of the here and now. It's, there's that immanent quality, but also transcendent, it's completely beyond. And uh, one of the ways that is also, I find, helpful to reflect on this combination of qualities is in the very word that the Buddha used to refer to himself, tathagata. Which is seem, he seems to have coined that word himself to refer to the this uh, the nature of his own uh, reality, and uh, you can read the word in two different ways, uh, either as tathagata or tathagata. So the the a in the middle uh, uh, is a, a, a negation. So uh, gata is. Um, uh, from the word to go, gachami, like Buddhang Saranang gachami, I go to the Buddha for refuge. Agata means to come. So the word tat uh, means such or thus, and uh, agata means, uh, means come, gata means gone. So the word can either be thus come or thus gone, gone to suchness or come to suchness, either totally transcendent or totally present, imminent. And my, my feeling is that the Buddha was very, very fond of, of puns and word plays, double meanings. So my suspicion, my pet theory, is that he very, very deliberately coined that word to have two meanings, both totally present and attuned to the, the, uh, the uh, imminent experience uh, of the sense world and totally transcendent simultaneously, both completely present and completely gone, both here, uh, here present, imminent, and totally transcendent at the same time. So, and so this was uh, uh, also from the same person, different question. Um, are there actually five bases of spiritual power rather than four? And then uh, they, they quote this um, particular sutta um, and uh, refer to that, uh, the, the shorter discourse on the elephant's footprint. And I looked it up and, and searched through it, but I couldn't find that, uh, the, that particular reference there. But it is in the Chetokila Sutta, which is the, um, the wilderness of the heart. So uh, the, um, uh, that's Sutta number 16 uh, of the Majjhima Nikaya. And so the, as I was just saying earlier on, there are usually in, in the list four basis of spiritual power, the Idipada, Chanda, Virya, Jitta, and Vimangsa, those, those four. So uh, uh, interest or, or zeal, uh, energy, um, reflection, uh, you know, so say consideration, and then um, re, uh, uh, reflection or review, 
Um, but in this particular sutta, the wilderness of the heart, then the Buddha adds on another one. And he, ha he has a, a fifth that he adds to the list. And that um, in that particular sutta, he's talked about these, uh, say, these five qualities, which he calls the wilderness of the heart. And wilderness not being a, a kind of a attractive or inspiring or, or sort of positive quality in this respect, but rather somewhere where you're kind of lost and alone and in danger and, uh, and sort of starving and... and uh, in a distressed or difficult situation. And so that um, those wildernesses uh, of the heart are doubt about the teacher, doubt about the teaching, uh, doubt about the sangha, doubt about the training, and doubt about the, your fellow spiritual companions. So those are the five wildernesses of the heart that he talks about. Then he adds on to that, and there are, there are five further kind of bonds or shackles or, or limitations that are added to that, which is uh, attachment to sense pleasure, attachment to, um, to the body, attachment to the, the world of form, attachment to sleep, and then the desire to be reborn as a, a deity, uh, to be reborn in the, in the heavenly worlds. And so he talks of those as, as shackles or bonds or, or things that tie the heart down. And so uh, he uh, then uh, talks about those as so two groups of five, but then says, but uh, if I'm remembering the sutta correctly, he says, but uh, if you also remember these, uh, these other five qualities, that will, uh, that will help you to, to deal with those and help to counteract those, those first ten that are problematic. And so he names uh, chanda, virya, jitta, vimangsa, those, uh, let's say, uh, interest and uh, energy, um, reflection and review and then, he's, and then he, uh, he deliberately says and then adding enthusiasm as a fifth and that uh, is a, another unusual Pali word usolhi U-S-S-O-L with a dot underneath H-I usolhi which means enthusiasm and he says so with enthusiasm as a fifth so he's consciously adding an extra one to the usual list but again that's not uh, that's not unusual <laughs> for the buddha to do he he'll have a standard list but sometimes he'll he'll tweak it and and add extra elements to it so sometimes you you most often have the eightfold path sometimes he adds an extra couple of elements to the uh, to the uh, to the eightfold path, he'll he'll add sort of knowledge and vision uh, of the way things are, or the realization of liberation and, su and such like. So that he's not absolutely rigid and fixed in terms of of his lists. Um, so that uh, um, uh, this question: Are there five bases of spiritual power, or four? And um, so that, uh, and then there's a, sub, a supplementary question: Is chanda, zeal, and usolhi, enthusiasm, are they the same? <laughs> the, uh, uh, as, uh, I was I was looking it up and was was trying to sort of uh, uh, say ponder for myself, and I think that that um, the uh, the the way that he talks about uh, enthusiasm, usolhi, it's a uh, uh, it's an, uh, a kind of an a, an energetic engagement. So I'd say it's close to chanda. Um, but it's a little bit narrower. It's a, it's a, um, where chanda is uh, a kind of any sort of setting of a direction of like, you know, yes, I'm interested to do this. So that can be quite, uh, it can be quite cool. It can be quite, uh, yeah, that's a good idea. Um, that, I think that's an interesting direction to go. That, that, looks, that looks good. So chanda can have a, a, a coolness or a, a sort of calmness or a very orderly quality to it. My, my feeling or the impression I get with usolhi is, so the, yes, let's do it. It's a kind of charge 
uh, to it. But I could be wrong, and it's just how I'm reading it uh, from the from the scriptures. And um, so that that, uh, uh, and not to to put it down. I mean, it's not to put it down. It's a, it's a skillful spiritual quality, but it's um, it's that kind of uh, fuel in the system, if you like. It's like, yeah, that's, let, let's uh, let, let's do this. Let's engage. It's a, it is a good direction, and uh, let's uh, let's activate that. So that that's my my reading of it. The. Um, uh, uh, I feel that uh, when we, we and there's another another of the questions is about the the lists that the, the Buddha makes. It's a he it's a, a kind of skillful means that he uses to to gather qualities together, but uh, it it's, uh, it can easily be an attachment. Well, is that five or is that four? Is it, you know, which which is the right one? There, there must be a right version, but uh, the, the Buddha spoke in a very organic and. Um, imaginative uh, way and so that he used different forms different situations and, and with different people uh, for example um, there's uh, in the teachings on dependent origination there's about nine different formulations that the, the buddha uses in different suttas different uh, situations uh, you can uh, uh, you can find a, a big variety you sometimes with extra elements put in or goes off in a, a different direction um, it <clears throat> otherwise sometimes it kind of stops short at one particular place so that it's not like a, a fixed rigid pattern that's, that's, that's hyper consistent throughout the teachings so next one Oh, so this is uh, exactly on that theme. So in one of your Sunday talks in the summer of last year, you mentioned the Sabhasava Sutta, which is the second discourse in the uh, middle-length discourses. The, the means all of the outflows, or all of the asavas, the, all of the taints. During this lockdown period, I managed to read the Sutta and understa understand almost uh, all of it. Well done. <laughs> Congratulations. I would be pleased if you could kindly clarify the following confusing statement in the sutta. It says that there are three, or four according to the Abhidhamma, asavas. Kamasava, which is the outflow of sense desire. Bhavasava, the outflow of becoming. Avijasava, the outflow of ignorance. And Dittasava, the outflow of opinions, views and opinions. As a layman, I feel, I may be completely wrong, that there, is a, that there is a contradictory statement. It says, the origin of the asavas is due to avijja, ignorance. But avijja itself is one of the asavas. It is a dilemma which I am struggling to understand. <laughs> so, um, yeah, again, the, this is a kind of, um, uh, let's say, uh, a pattern that you, you, uh, you, one comes across occasionally in the in the teachings, and uh, again, it's uh, it's good to contemplate and say, well, how can that work, or what might that compare to in in the physical world or in the mental world, or you know, is there some kind of process where I can see how that works? And uh, reflecting on this, one of the th the things that come to mind: how can ignorance be the cause of ignorance, or how does that work? Yeah. And uh, uh, it's uh, one way of looking at it is rather like 
a um, say a, a whirlwind. You know that you have a a, a small vortex of air that that because of a positive feedback loop, that small um, vortex of air gets stronger and stronger and stronger until it turns into a whole tornado. You get a whole massive whirlwind. It started off with the same uh, circular process, but because of uh, an accumulation and because of that positive feedback loop, it gets stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger, and then it goes from a small to rudimentary vortex, a little spiral of of air moving to and turns into a whole massive destructive tornado. They're both air spinning around in a in a vortex, but uh, the one has uh, has been very sort of rudimentary or germinal. It's been a very um, basic process and it's ripened into this massive and destructive process. So that it's a uh, that you can say it's the same quality, it's just air moving in a circle, like Avija is just Avija. <laughs> but uh, the, uh, uh, in the, I would say that it's very similar in this respect, just a small movement of, of unmindfulness, just the, the uh, attention wandering off the, the object or the, the, the attention drifting, um, one kind of mind moment or a couple of, uh, of mind moments of ignorance, of not seeing clearly, and then if that, just like with a whirlwind, you know, if it sort of catches the right momentum, then that that one distracted moment in meditation, uh, rather than just oh, you know, the mind is distracted, get back to the the feeling of the breath, or we'll get back to the vipassana uh, practice. It can be, uh, it can be uh, the the cause of a whole great uh, sort of confusing mess. That, that that moment of distraction could just be when you think, oh, you know, I'm fed up with this. My meditation isn't going anywhere. Actually, this whole thing is completely pointless. Yeah, I'm going to go out uh, for a. Uh, I'm going to go out for a drive, and you go out for a drive, and you have a car crash, and you get into an argument, and then you're having a fist fight on the street, and it's like, whoa, and the whole thing began just with uh, the mind drifting off the, the breath for a few moments. That's a bit of an exaggerated example, but that, that's the kind of thing. It was, it was just a moment of distraction, but if it's caught in a particular way, it can become something that's much greater than a cause for for greater distraction, greater confusion, and greater greater suffering. So, uh, but again, with, with many of these aspects of the teaching, I think it's very good to be using the the lockdown time for picking up the suttas uh, and um, uh, really not to just take my word for it, uh, but really uh, using this opportunity to explore for oneself. When, and particularly when there are things that are not uh, not clear, like what does that word mean? Like usolhi. Wow, I never even heard of that. What what is that? And how is it how is it different from this other word? You know, how are they used? Can you track it down? Find the different places where it's used in the suttas. What's the the tone? What's the Buddha saying when he uses that word? What's the tone? What's the message when he's using the other word? Well, is there a difference? Is there a contrast? How, how is that working? So you're actively using the skill of wise reflection. You're ex picking it up and exploring it rather than just. Um, yeah. I mean, I am sitting in a in a high seat, <laughs> being an authority. But rather than looking to somebody sitting in a high seat, being an authority, to tell you, you know, this is the way it is, and this is how you should understand it. But I feel one of the great strengths of the Buddha's teaching is that it's it's designed to help us to teach ourselves that we're not just getting the word from outside, but the the Buddha's encouragement is always to help us to develop the tools to to learn from our own experience, our own exploration. 
And we learn best from within our own hearts, within our own minds, rather than just getting information from outside. We, we, we learn most completely and most fully by, by seeing for ourselves, by, by uh, exploring and discovering for ourselves. So I feel this is uh, very admirable to be carrying out this kind of uh, exploration and reflection. And to, to, to uh, you know, when you come across those, hmm, how does that work? To, uh, to, um, uh, dig deeper to open it up and to consider a bit more fully or what is that referring to sometimes to to look at the uh, the origins of a Pali word you can you can access the the Pali Tech Society dictionary online as a free online um, I say uh, uh, freely available you can look it up you can look at the etymology of the word where it comes from what it's built up for what the what the building blocks are and sometimes that can be very revealing also, other uh, suttas where the same word is used or the same phrase, yeah, that reminds me of something, where have I seen that before? Yeah, and nowadays with, with Google and, uh, and the, say, Pali resources, you can look up the original Pali text in the Pali language, you can track down the words and, and, uh, and uncover it, yeah, what, what might be the meaning of, of that particular word. Similarly, in terms of, of things being illogical, and talking about dependent origination, one of the main teachings about dependent origination, the Mahanidana Sutta, in the Diganikaya, the long discourses, that's the biggest discourse about, um, about dependent origination. When the Buddha is describing it there, uh, it, he follows the process back from, uh, from Dukkha to, uh, say, uh, to um, Vijnana, and, uh, and Nama Rupa, uh, the mind of Nama Rupa, menta mentality and materiality, and Vijnana, um, so that's, uh, say, discriminative consciousness. And then he says, and what conditions Nama Rupa? Vijnana, discriminative consciousness. What conditions uh, uh, Vijnana? Nama Rupa. They condition each other. They, uh, and so and he uses the phrase, it turns back upon itself. So in that particular teaching, he's pointing out how, yeah, Nama Rupa conditions Vijnana, Vijnana conditions Nama Rupa. And the logical mind might think, well, how, how does that work? But again, it's, uh, uh, you can explore that or reflect on that and, and see, well, how's the Buddha talking about it? Uh, wh where can I find out more about that? And in that particular instance, um, the, you'll, if you look, you, you can uh, find uh, Venerable Nyanananda's book called uh, The Magic of the Mind. And he talks about exactly that, that process. And he, says, he calls it the, the Nama Rupa Vijnana Vortex. And, and he uses that same simile of how it's a, a, what starts off as a, as a small rudimentary movement then ripens into a whole sort of a dichotomy between Nama Rupa on one side and Vijnana on, on the other. And how that, uh, that process ripens from a, a germinal state to a, a full-blown um, uh, say distinction between those two qualities, and then the, the uh, how did the the process of dependent origination uh, then kicks off further from that. So, not to get too technical, but uh, I think it, it, they, there are resources we have available in the, uh, the now, and this is a really good time to be using those contemplative faculties to sort of sharpen the the uh, the kind of investigative. Uh, uh, abilities that we have to to follow that up and to and to and also not to be afraid of things being mysterious speaking of dependent origination 
uh, uh, you know, I'd, already, I'd already been in the monastery for a couple of years before I even heard the term. I think I was, I'd been in Thailand for a, a couple of years and had never even heard about it. Came to England and then uh, Lumpur Sumedh, I mentioned that in, in one or two teachings, saying, huh, well, what's that about? And then starting to look it, look it up in the, in the books and thinking, what the heck is that about? Well, this is really weird. And uh, for a long time, just uh, seeing, well, I can understand that bit. Okay, feeling and craving, okay. <laughs> that's, that's pretty tangible, I can understand that bit. But this whole uh, piece of sankhara, vijnana, namarupa, you know, the volitional formations, consciousness, mind and body, uh, how, what, what's that mean? What's that referring to? So in that respect, if things are mysterious, don't feel that you have to dispel the mystery, that, that sometimes it's helpful to, to recognize that's an area I don't understand. I don't know what those, those words are referring to. It's just, I'm just, I'm not getting that. And to, to not feel you have to fill up that space or, or, the, or to create anxiety or a feeling of lack over it, just, well, that's a mystery, you know? Like if you have a, a, a bookshelf for your mysteries, you know, the kind of mystery novels. <laughs> Put it on your mystery shelf and say, well, okay, I'm interested in that. I don't know how that works, but I'll maybe get to that later. But right now it's, it's, it's not knowable. It's, it's, it's not clear. And so then over time, uh, then the more that you practice, the more you investigate and, and uh, reflect, then what happens generally is that uh, things come together. You hear a talk or you see a different phrase written somewhere else or you, you read a, a teaching, you hear a Dhamma talk uh, and you go, oh, right, that's, what, that's a different way of describing it. Maybe that's what it's about. And then things, things fall into place. So next one. Dear Ajahn, is there a difference between non-hatred and metta? Um, short answer, no. <laughs> so a non, oftentimes you get the, the, a word like dosa means ill will or aversion, hatred. Adosa means non-ill will or non-hatred. And um, generally speaking, as far as I'm aware, then uh, the, the, say, adosa, uh, non-hatred or non-ill will, is a, a synonym for metta, for, for loving kindness. And um, that, uh, I, again, I, I checked up, um, I was looking through the books <laughs> this afternoon, and I checked up on that, and that's exactly what uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi says in his note on that, that it's uh, for the word uh, adosa, you can, uh, you can substitute loving kindness. It's also a helpful teaching in that respect, that, uh, and this is often talked about in, in Lumpur Sumedho's teachings, I try to emphasize myself as well, that when we talk about metta, it can often come across as, uh, say, encouraging a sweet feeling or a feeling of liking for everything, and, the, and the translating metta as loving-kindness can carry that tone of uh, we're supposed to make ourselves like, the aim is to like everything. Or well, like last week I was talking about how even if you're being tortured, having your arms and legs cut off, the Buddha is encouraging us to have loving kindness for the people who are, who are mutilating our bodies. You, you can't like that. You can't, be, you can't be happy about that. But you can uh, have adosa. You can dwell with a, with a heart free from hatred. You can, without any hypocrisy, without any suppression, you can have a heart that is free of hatred. There is non-ill will. You, so there's no... Uh, so in a way, the, the term like adosa 
it's kind of closer to what Lumpur Sumato is expressing, uh, uh, and he would use the phrase not dwelling in aversion uh, for metta, so that it's carrying that same kind of meaning. It's like, yeah, I might not like it, I might not, uh, um, say, find this pleasant, and I never will. It's not likable, but here it is. It's, it's exactly this way, so I don't need to, to create hatred towards it. I can be completely open to this. It's unpleasant, it's, it's uncomfortable, it's uh, unwished for, but here it is, and so that we can, we can have uh, a quality of acceptance for that which even is uh, completely unlikable. Uh, and so that I feel in terms of metta, that, uh, that term adosa, is, uh, is very helpful in that respect. It's carrying that sense of an openness of heart. And I like to use the, the phrase uh, radical acceptance in that respect. It's a, uh, you are uh, open-hearted. Uh, you are not, say, uh, cultivating any kind of negativity or uh, feelings of, of aversion. And it's not sugaring things over. You're not being hi- uh, hypocritical or, or delusory. You're not just switching off, but rather it's like you can you can have a heart that's completely free of hatred for that which is totally unlikable, <laughs> and uh, so I feel that uh, it's a, a skillful way of expressing that same quality. So next one, dear Ajahn Amaro, I'm dealing with a lot of repressed anger at the moment. It's very uh, it very much feels like there is a store quote unquote of anger that has not been dealt with. How is it possible to see this as something dependently arisen in the present without falling into the view, I am an angry person, underlined, quote unquote. I would appreciate any comments and help with this. Um, yeah, various different, I mean, it's just even phrasing the, the, the question like that. In a sense, it, it's, uh, uh, I would say that, uh, well, you, you kind of got the main idea already that that's a, uh, the, to be able to to say uh, that's the framework of it is is a uh, um, uh, it's a, it's an arisen state. It's not who and what I am. There might be the feeling of you know I am angry and I've got a lot of anger, and uh, and, and there can also be particularly in the sort of Western psychological mode you can be in a sense owning your anger or like you're, you're in the effort to not suppress it or not. And deny it or negate it. So I'm, I'm, I'm owning where I'm at. I'm, I'm owning what I am, and so that, that kind of that kind of owning, uh, with quote marks maybe, <laughs> that that can be a skillful thing. That you're not suppressing it or making excuses for it. You're saying, yeah, here it is. This is part of this particular flow of experiences. But then that kind of um, I would say skillful recognition or acceptance of yeah this is part of the experience then to to go and that extra step to say I am this or this is me this is what I am as some kind of fixed and ultimate reality is going too far and and, and becomes very obstructive and and unhelpful Um, and so that then that uh, there are very, various different ways of working with that. One of them uh, that uh, I often talk about and I found very, very helpful myself is what uh, uh, Lumpur Sumato would call uh, making the, the darkness visible or, or, or conscious clinging. So that rather than, because you know, we, we, we're, we're professional 
meditators were supposed to be we're professional good people <laughs> so you know the feelings of of uh, aversion or selfishness or jealousy or, or or sense desire you know they're they're within this community and, and and within the buddhist field they're kind of flagged as oh unskillful unwholesome not to be followed not uh, not not beautiful not good and so that uh, we uh, and then a lot of the teachings. Most of the teachings are talking about dispelling, you know, greed, hatred, delusion, and uh, letting freeing the heart from those obstructions. So um, we, in following those instructions and trying to be a good Buddhist, a good practitioner, a good meditator, and doing things in a, a right and effective, a successful way, then we can be working very hard to do things to help the, those kind of states to end, like helping that that anger to end. But then, in that, the, um, there can be quite a, quite a substantial amount of vibhava tanha, the desire to get rid of, the desire to annihilate, and also subtle kinds of identification. I am an angry person. I have got a lot of anger. I am. I am. I am worried. I, I'm. I am anxious. I'm a. I'm a worried person. I'm a worrier. That's what I am. Um, and that. That those kind of subtle uh, qualities of identification, uh, ownership, um, and uh, the the the, uh, the aversion of vibhava tanha, the wanting to get rid of. If only I, if I didn't have this worry, then everything would be great. If I didn't have so much lust, if I wasn't so jealous, if only I didn't have this anger, then be me without the anger, which would be great, right? <laughs> yeah, that, that's how we feel. And I certainly had a lot of that, particularly around anxiety uh, uh, in the past, but other other qualities as well. So in that, you don't realize the, the structures that we're putting in place. So as a couple of those teachings uh, of Lumpur Sumedhas I found really helpful. To, to rather than, than using the practice to push those things away, you actually kind of draw them closer and highlight them. I say, I am worried. I am a worrier. That's what I am. I am worried. I'm, I'm always worried. I am a worrying person. And that when you, you catch that, that habit and, in a sense, highlight it and, and sort of freeze it in full view, then there's a way, if that's done in, in a systematic and deliberate fashion, that it loses its strength. Like, to, like with, with this question about anger, I am an angry person. I have a lot of anger. That anger belongs to me. I am an angry person. And if you sort of clear everything else out of the way and you sort of put that front center and say, I am that, something in the heart goes, no, you're not. <laughs> That's not how could that be the whole story? Uh, and it's not a conceptual knowing. It's not like a, the, you're trying to persuade yourself that's the truth. It's like your heart knows that can't be the whole story. That's not, that's not it. And uh, so I found this extraordinarily helpful. So you, you call it conscious clinging, uh, and uh, uh, it's best not to say it out loud. <laughs> it's like an internal process whereby you're you're developing this in the meditation. But if you know, I've got I, I want to work on this habit or this tendency to be uh, to be angry or to be anxious or to be lustful or to be to be selfish. And okay, I see that's a strong tendency. I want to understand that. So you deliberately pick it up. And so then in the meditation, letting the mind be as quiet as possible, then to invite that in and say, I am angry. I have a lot of anger and that's mine. That's what I am. I have it. I own this 
anger. It's mine. Or however, you, however you want to phrase it. Or, and then just bring that in, highlight it, and then don't add any kind of commentary about what you should or shouldn't be, but just bring that in, highlight it, kind of naming what the attitude is. Just let it speak up. Okay, front center, speak up. Tell me, tell me. Uh, I am angry. That's what I am. I, I am angriness. Or I, I'm afraid. I'm, I'm I am worried. I'm a, I'm a worrier. That's what I am. I am a worrier. And then in that uh, process, when everything else is put aside, you invite that in. Uh, what I would find is you can't get to the end of the sentence, really, without it falling apart. Something just collapses. It's, it loses its strength. Uh, it's, it's rather like... Um, uh, I was, uh, it's a bit of a tangential example, but it's uh, apparently why they, when people could go to fast food rest restaurants <laughs> and sit in them, it's why they have bright lights and hard seats in fast food restaurants so that people don't stay long. You don't, you don't feel comfortable. You want to move on because it's too bright and you don't want to linger. If they want people to linger, they have dim lights, comfortable seats, and uh, they, uh, like in bars or... or, or um, nightclubs and such like people to stay a long time sit where they are and buy lots of buy lots of things fast food restaurant restaurants they want people to move on so there's space for more people to come in so bright lights hard seats and so it's like you're turning the lamps on say okay i am angry i'm an angry person you, you shine the lights bright you get it front center and then it can't, it, it, it can't do its job, it can't, the trick doesn't work, it's like it needs the dim lights of a bar or a, a, a nightclub, you, need, but you can't kind of see clearly and it's, sort of, it's a bit hazy and you're a bit drunk and then, then the trick works because it, it's, it's sort of off in the shadows, now, I am an angry person, I'm always feeling angry, I'm always worried, I want, I'm so lustful, I just lust after everything, you know, you know, anybody of that particular gender is, is interesting, is exciting, I, 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 want, I desire everybody. So, no, you don't. <laughs> when you get the lights on front center and you, you highlight it, say, well, no, I'm not angry all the time. I'm not worried all the time. I don't desire absolutely everybody all the time. It's not the case. The angry feeling comes and goes. The jealous feeling comes and goes. The worried feeling comes and goes. And that falling apart, uh, then the, 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 so the, the, I would say the completion part of that practice is to consciously notice that falling apart when that drops away. In that moment, there's a direct awareness. The heart knows that's not the whole story. That's not true. That's just an impression. That's a story you tell yourself, but it's not, it's not, uh, it's not the truth. To really let that knowing sink into the heart, to, to really be fully cognized, and let, let it have its effect. Um, the, uh, another of the, um, the aspects of a, a, a approach that uh, Lumpur Sumedho would, would teach uh, around this would be to, to say, look at the way the mind is phrasing it. Like, uh, we say, I am an angry person, or I am a jealous person, or I am an anxious person. And he say that, that he would point out, we can change the paradigm rather than, I, uh, I am an angry person who's got to get rid of their anger, and when I haven't got my anger, then I'll be, I'll be me without the anger, and that will be good. Yeah. <laughs> but rather, uh, rather than uh, I am an, uh, a person who's got a lot of anger, in this moment, here's the awake mind aware of a, of a feeling. Here's the Buddha mind aware of the way things are. So rather than me and my problem, it's here's the, the Buddha aware of the Dhamma, is the 
to shift the, the paradigm, to change the, the framework. So it's, it's, not, it's not me and my problem, but the, the Buddha seeing the Dhamma. Which might sound a little bit inflated, but it's that, that Buddha wisdom, that vicha, that awareness being actualized, being activated to know the way things are. And if the way things are is an angry feeling, then that's what's being known in, in that moment. So, next one. In living the Buddha's teachings in the outside world, it sometimes seems like an uphill battle, being surrounded by those who do not. How does one live a good Buddhist life when surrounded by selfishness and greed, which seems to be quite pervasive? Um, nothing has changed much in the last two and a half thousand years, unfortunately. <laughs> so it's always been a bit of an uphill, uh, uphill battle. And uh, I think it's, uh, as I often mention, it's good to consider that immediately after the Enlightenment, the Buddha's first thought was, there's no point trying to explain this to anybody because the world is so deeply entrenched in attachment, in becoming, in identification with, uh, with the, the body and the personality and with worldly goals. There's no point trying to teach at all. So um, it was an uphill battle then, <laughs> and, it, and it is now because the, the, um, the kind of... Uh, power of ignorance in the human mind and in the, in the living world is extraordinarily uh, great. It's, it's a massive influence um, because of our, our animal ancestry, the, the kind of um, say force of, uh, say, sense desire, ill will, the, the pressures of territory, competition, and so on. You know, these, are, these are all very you know, kind of powerful influences. So I feel that in, in terms of this, this question, that uh, I would say, don't, first of all, don't think of it, maybe it's depressing to, to think that things are not particularly bad now. It's always been this way. And that uh, the, the, um, the degree to which one can associate with, with like-minded people is, is significant. So if that's through, um, uh, say, being part of a Buddhist group or joining in with with Buddhist activities or, or meditation group medita and uh, connecting up with other like-minded people, that can help to the degree that that's possible in the, in the lockdown situation. Um, also, I feel just, in a sense, um, one of the things that can be kind of wearing on us or destructive is the degree to which we feel we're compelled to join in with, every, with what everybody around us is doing. I've got to be like them because everyone else is excited about this, so I should be too. Or uh, um, this is uh, you know this is what my family is always doing this, so I should I should be part of that. Um, and uh, not trying to break up families or, or make things difficult, but I feel that sometimes out of a, a, a misplaced loyalty or a, a sense of wanting to be friendly or or, or belonging. We can find ourselves joining in and, and going along with things that we really don't want to do. We're not interested in. Our heart's not in it. And um, so in terms of making choices around that, I don't make other people's choices for them. But I feel what can be helpful in terms of uh, reducing that amount of wearying and, and burdensome effect of the negative impact of people around us is to see where we can make choices to reflect, do I really want to join in with this? Or am I really interested in this? Is, this? is this something I really want to do? Or is this important to me? And often just taking a few moments uh, uh, here and there, a few times during the day, just to ask yourself that question. 
am I really interested in this? Do I really want to do this? Do I, do I really want to spend my time doing this? And it's, it's like a, um, it's not a, a massive amount of effort to make to, to reflect in that way, but the, the impact can be quite great. It's like, like a, putting a key in a lock, a key, it's putting a, the right key in the right lock and turning it, it's not a massive effort, but if it's the right key for the right lock, then it'll open the door. So similarly, if we just ask ourselves those kind of questions, am I really interested in this, or do I really want to be doing this, or is this, is this, is this important to me? What do I, you know, how do I really want to be spending my time? Just that small amount of reflection placed in the right way can help us to not be burning a lot of energy and, and effort in spending time being with people that uh, we, uh, we're not, uh, it's not helpful for us or not beneficial for us and, or doing things that are not beneficial or helpful and so that we can use our time and our energy uh, more skillfully. Um, the, the degree to which we can choose our companions, I think it, the Buddha prays very highly, not to associate with fools, to associate with the wise, this is the highest blessing. Or speaking about the uh, the, uh, the asavas, the outflows as the causes of avijja, in another sutta the Buddha talks about drawing close to good people, sapurisa sangseva, as uh, the, the, the root cause for dispelling ignorance. If you can <laughs> the degree to which you can choose to be with good people uh, and spending time with good people that that's uh, setting the the ground for freeing the heart from from ignorance so the degree to which one can choose who you spend time with who you pay attention to uh, who you look to as your companions your associates your your mentors the the you know, making skillful choices in that area to the degree that it's uh, it's possible that can make a big difference and then, you know, I, I often, whenever I talk about this, the usual response from people say, well, Ajahn, you don't know my family, or uh, <laughs> come along to my office and see what you think about that. Uh, and so, you know, come to my monastery, <laughs> tell me what you think. And so sometimes we, we can't make choices, but also we can choose how much we carry other people around, like somebody in our family might be particularly challenging, or someone in the workplace, or someone in our monastery might be particularly challenging but it's still up to us how much we carry that person around even if they have a, a big impact uh, it's still it, the 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 attitude that is nursed that is sustained in our own heart that's up to us so that even if someone has a has a big presence or has a loud impact or is quite challenging to be with it's still our choice whether we carry them around, whether we, we grumble about them in our, in our minds, so if only he was different, then if he was this way instead of that way, then everything will be all right. And that um, that association isn't just in a matter of physical association, it's also how much we pick people up in our minds and carry them around. So to, uh, in, in, in that respect, um, if you're being impacted by difficult people, you make what input you can to help them to be more easy, less challenging, and then leave it alone. You just recognize certain things are out of your control, and if it's out of your control, then don't create suffering about it. That's that's really, I would say, uh, the um, uh, uh, one of the most helpful attitudes, so that you're you're not burdening yourself with all these all this wrongness of other people that you're you're carrying around with you, even when they're not in the room. So, next one. If we are beginning to see the cessation, quote-unquote, when practicing, 
is it skillful to favor that emptiness while using skillful means, for example, meta-concentration and so on, to work through the hindrances when they arise? So um, is it useful to be seeing the empty nature of, of, of things while practicing loving kindness or concentration? Uh, short answer, yes, very good. <laughs> the, um, there's a particular teaching of the, uh, of the Buddha where he's talking about applying insight throughout the development of concentration. And, uh, and for each of the, the levels of jhana and so on, he's, he says there's this reflection going on. This, this too is, is, uh, is unsatisfactory and is, is conditionally produced. It's, it's contingent. It's, it's dependent. It's... Uh, it, um, the, uh, this also is conditioned. So it's keeping everything in perspective as you go along. So the Buddha gives precisely that, that uh, example and says uh, how that, that is something that, that's beneficial. So you're bringing that, that insight particularly into, into not-self because emptiness, in, in the majority of the Pali teachings, empty, sunya, means empty of self and what belongs to a self. So the teachings, the teachings on anatta and the teachings on sunyata are very, very close in the, in the southern Buddhist world. So that I would say that the degree to which that, is, um, that empty quality or that dependent, conditioned quality of, of all uh, perceptions, all experiences, to the degree that's that's being genuinely kept in view, that's that's a helpful thing. Um, the uh, but within that, the um, I would say that it's it's a uh, it's helpful to be also using that the anatta lens quite consciously. That sense of is uh, is there a meditator here? Is there a me who's practicing metta? Is there a, a me who's concentrating? Is there an I that is the the knower of this? this bright wholesome mind state is there an i that's knowing this empty quality does this emptiness belong to a, a, a me is there is there a, is there an i thing here that's that's a, a supposedly or is a pseudo owner of it and to be looking at that i me and mine that i making it and mind making habit because that's that's insidious it kind of slides in the back door and takes over it's like a the that kind of um what they call it, the, uh, the, um, the zombie fungus, that, so the, this kind of fungal spores that invade various kinds of ants and take, the, take, a, the, take their lives over. Um, the uh, Ophiocordyceps unilater un, unilateralis, I think it's called, this kind of zombie fungus that takes over uh, uh, an ant and then makes the ant behave according to the, the, the fungus's wishes and then to spread the, the fungus through the, through the forest. The, um, that's what uh, uh, ignorance and uh, self-view, uh, conceit, is like that sort of zombie fungus that sort of it takes over even meditation practice and 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 wisdom and sort of turns it to its own purposes. And so that that might seem a little bit tangential, <laughs> but uh, it is rather like that. Uh, I feel that the sense of uh, that uh, we can feel that we're we're, we're practicing meditation, we're doing all these spiritual things, we're developing all these qualities, but it's my mind, my realization of emptiness, my mind, yeah, my experience, yeah, my practice is really going somewhere good. <laughs> and that it's slipped in the back door, like the, the, um, uh, the Ophiocordyceps fungus, and is uh, taken over the whole thing, so that the, the ant is a, is a zombie, the ant has had its life completely co-opted, and... Uh, 
And so that uh, that's, that's how ignorance works. Uh, it, it can takes over even wholesome activity and disguises itself as sort of spiritual work, but it's more uh, avijja, pachaya, sankara. It's more ignorance creating complication and doesn't lead to, uh, to liberation in the long run. So I'd say as long as that uh, recognition of emptiness is, is genuine and it's empty of self and what belongs to a self, then it will be beneficial. Okay, dear Ajahn Amaro, having come in contact with the Lord Buddha's Dhamma teachings quite recently and late in life, I'm 65, I feel like a thirsty traveler stranded in the desert suddenly encountering an oasis of pure and crystalline water. The first impulse is to drink the whole pond in one gulp. Watching videos, hearing podcasts, reading books, especially from your tradition, Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Sumedho, and other Ajahns and nuns, almost 24-7, it feels like an addiction albeit a good one, question mark. I noticed I might be a little unbalanced, <laughs> having drunk the whole pond. Um, that's, at least to be able to recognize that you're trying to drink the whole pond, that's a, that's a good thing. Um, uh, I may, might be a little unbalanced and feel that I don't make enough time for a good digestion, quote unquote, of the teaching by complementing it with insight and meditation time of our true nature, even with mindfulness during work hours. What would you suggest to return to a good balance for a healthy digestion of the spiritual food the Dhamma offers without losing, quote unquote, the energy this momentum is giving? I feel very grateful for your Sunday talks and for the Sangha that technically make them happen. So the gratitude to the uh, techno, techno team. Um, well, I think it's, it's uh, speaking of usholhi, <laughs> the enthusiasm is like, yes, you know, starving in the desert, dry, you know, dried out, and suddenly there's this great big pool of, of, uh, of delicious, clear, beautiful, refreshing water. It's natural to just <laughs> jump in and try and drink the whole pond. And uh, I, I very much had that experience coming into to what by Nana Chat in, Thailand, you know, all those years ago, that I was very much had that stranded in a desert and walking into a uh, a place with was this kind of a, a massive resource of refreshing and uh, delightful, free, <laughs> uh, crystalline, uh, reviving water. So I had this I had similar enthusiasm and excitement. So I think it's it's good to recognise. Yeah, it's natural. You're thirsty. So something is going to react in that way. But also, I think rather than trying to be a different way rather than oh, I should be different or as it was put um, uh, how to return to a good balance I, I, I would say there's no thing that you have to do but just rather look at the effects of indigestion like after you have overdone it with something delicious just that sitting back and going whoa I'm pretty full here whoa <laughs> this, this is really quite uncomfortable just noticing the uncomfortable feeling of being overstuffed and having overdone it and, and being exhausted or just drained. Uh, and um, that, in a way, that, that which is recognizing this is a bit out of balance, that's the thing to trust. Just that, that's the, that, um, your, your natural sense of, um, of uh, say, balance or, or orderliness is saying, uh, I think you've overdone it here a bit. <laughs> And so that there's, I wouldn't say there's any kind of special thing to do, but just let the effects of that overstuffedness be fully conscious. And then that leads to a greater sense of moderation. That the the next time you start sort of reaching for the 
the the YouTube collection of, of uh, Dhamma talks and think, well, okay, I've been sitting here for three and a half hours already, so maybe go make a cup of tea or stretch my legs. And and uh, I, I know what I felt after the last marathon. I know how I felt. That was that was pretty uh, exhausting and uncomfortable. So let's uh, uh, let's let's not do that again. So that, it, that uh, there's a natural balancing I, uh, that comes from. The, the vimangsa, in a way, looking at the results of what you've done. Then, but if we don't look, we don't really let that in, then we just keep following the habit. So that uh, vimangsa, that reviewing the results of, of what we've done, that's what I'm saying is uh, the most effective thing, letting there be a full consciousness of being overstuffed. Okay, having followed that impulse, uh, this, is, this is the too much of a good thing feeling. Whoa. <laughs> this, is, this, this is a... Uh, uh, <coughs> This is a, a, a really quite uncomfortable. This is unpleasant. And then, then you don't have to tell yourself, I'm not going to do that again, or, or why do I do this to myself? It, uh, there's a natural intuitive, a direct teaching that comes from that. And uh, sometimes it's the case that the less there is that I should do this or I shouldn't do that, the, uh, the more wordless and immediate, the more it's uh, actually the felt sense of that stuffedness or the... the, the, the um, uh, the absence of a commentary about what you should and shouldn't do, but just letting the, the the tone, the feeling tone of it speak for itself, that is often the, the most um, uh, helpful way of establishing a, a sense of matanyuta or the, the right amount. Okay, last one. Dear Ajahn Amaro, the idea that the more you meditate, the better, quote-unquote, or that... Quote, those who meditate the most are closest to Nibbana, unquote, seems to be widespread, perhaps due to the exhortations of some renowned teachers. Nevertheless, I find that this view can lead to a compulsive attitude to life and difficulty being at ease outside of formal practice. It also seems clear that many defilements can only be recognized and investigated outside of meditation. Do you think that it's possible to meditate too much? And if so... How would one know that less would be better? Yeah, I would say you can easily meditate too much. <laughs> the, uh, I think the more is better is generally a, a, a bad ethic to follow. <laughs> um, just because there's more of it doesn't mean to say it's better. And, uh, but also there's, there's all kinds of Micha samadhi, wrong meditation, as well as sama samadhi, so that you can do a lot of the wrong kind of meditation. You can work very hard uh, traveling down a road that's going in a really uh, uh, un, uh, unwanted direction. You, know, you can drive very, if you, if, uh, back in the days when people could drive cars, <laughs> if, you're trying to, if you're trying to drive to Chidhurst, uh, which is south of Amravati, and you get onto the, uh, the M25, and uh, you go uh, you go east instead of south, you can end up having a long journey. <laughs> or if you end up on the M1 and go north, then uh, you can drive very, very carefully um, for hundreds of miles and not get where you want to go. You can drive extremely, quote-unquote, mindfully uh, without having any accidents, being extremely thoughtful and attentive to the road and your vehicle, but uh, be heading in a totally wrong direction. So with meditation, it's, it's very much that way. So it's more important to work well than just to be working hard. So, and, you know, not to say it's, it's a bad thing to work hard, 
but to be working well is, uh, and and I say that it comes back to the idipada, those the basis of success. To think about what it is you want to do, to look at your intention, to look about the way you the, the you want to go about doing it, um, and <clears throat> how you're going to do it, and then looking at the results of what you've done. So if you notice the signs, you know, are saying this, you're, you're now approaching the Dartford crossing. You realize this is we're going around the m25 the wrong way this is the long way to chidhurst <laughs> we can get we can get there but this is the, the long way around through kent rather than going the short way around through uh, through surrey so uh, oops <laughs> the uh, you read the signs to see where you're going uh, and so that the um uh working hard uh, and putting effort into the practice is is very skillful but it's in, in a sense more important to work well to have those considerations okay why do i want to do this how am i going to do it um you know what's what, what's the 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 goal that i'm aiming at uh, and how's it going where where am i getting to and so then that uh the um efforts of meditation can be very very beneficial so it's not just the amount but the, the 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 quality of it and what you're what you're doing with your mind and your life in the process of meditation that's far more important than just the the number of hours i mean i know people who literally kind of chalking up the number of 10-day retreats they've done you know they've gone oh, oh i've got i'm past 80 retreats now oh i just that's just been on my 95th 10-day retreat yeah yeah it's good it's like well is it <laughs> It's a lot. It's a lot of sitting and uh, and walking, and a lot of diligence. But where are you going? What, what's the effect of it? So then, the second part, the, the other part of it, that says, um, uh, it also seems clear that many defilements can only be recognised and investigated outside of meditation. Well, it kind of depends what you mean by meditation. So Lumpur Chow would would emphasize that formal practice, so I like to use his, his approach, which is to say rather than thinking of meditation equals sitting still with your eyes closed or walking up and down on a meditation path equals meditation and the rest is just filler, that he would say, you know, all of our life is meditation. It's, it's really, whether you're sitting, standing, walking or lying down, whether you're talking to people and working or whether you're being still um, and focusing your attention on your breath, it, it's all still meditation if you have that the skillful attitude so that the um uh, i would say that uh many defilements uh can can be recognized or should be recognized within meditation if we expand the meditation beyond the idea of formal practice so i i, I like to use the languaging of formal meditation and informal meditation but it's all still meditation uh, as, and as again, as Lumpur Chow would say, you can suffer in every posture, so therefore you can you can practice in every posture, and so that it's it's not a question of um, of uh, say praising the formal practice as the one and only thing. And, and for many, uh, much of Lumpur Chow's style of teaching, it was living together, joining in work programs together. Uh, functioning as a community there was uh, a lot of, of wisdom d was developed from the the non-formal practice dimension but he would he wouldn't say that isn't meditation he would definitely say uh, being together on the on, uh, on in the workplace uh, uh, joining together in the kitchen to wash the pots you know this is all still meditation so i would adjust the language of this really um, 
and to say uh, that uh, many defilements can only be recognized and investigated outside of formal meditation, I would say, uh, yeah, because sometimes uh, the formal meditation, it's very easy to put, a, put the personal considerations to one side. And that particularly if you've got strong samadhi, you know, the mind concentrates quite, quite easily or quite strongly. You know, I know over the years a number of people in the Sangha who got really good kind of concentration, but then outside the meditation hall, they have really intense difficulties of getting along, getting along with the other humans. You know, if you can focus your mind on, on a single object and you put, the, all of, you put your own body, your own personality, your own concerns off to the edges and the mind is just focused on, say, the, the rhythm of the breath or, or a meditation object, you don't have to perform as a person. And so that the stronger the, the concentration is, the more effectively you can just create a little bubble. But then uh, it can be that if that bubble is your refuge, then when, when the bubble is not there and you've got to deal with these humans, you know, with feelings and opinions and stuff, you know, and they're in your space, it's like that then uh, if that really throws you off balance, then Lumpur Cha's whole style and the, the, how are these communities have, uh, based uh, on his teachings over these decades are all sort of built in the same way. It's like, well, that's where uh, you, are, are, you need to do some learning is in that interactive mode. And that's very much a part of the meditation. I would say that's not external to the meditation, but really that being mindful of those, say, inability to communicate well with other people or struggling with you know, aversion to this person or attraction to that person. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the mind needs to learn around those, those dynamics. And that's very much a, a part of the, of the practice. So that um, if the meditation uh, sort of is a, uh, a kind of um, escape uh, in an unskillful way, then it's, uh, and again, Lumpur would would do that as when, when famously one, when the monk had, had extraordinary skills in meditation and would love to just go into samadhi uh, uh, you know, anywhere and everywhere. And uh, Lumpur took him on as his, his uh, attendant and he wouldn't let him sit still. You know, he, he, as soon as he sat down, he kind of closed his eyes and liked to go off into samadhi. And Lumpur would say, oh, uh, uh, Bunker, I need a spittoon. No, no, not that kind. Give me a, give me a, give me a different one. Give me a big one. And I said, not that kind. Give me a brass one. Not that kind. He said, I need a kettle. Not that kind of kettle. This kind of kettle. And this, the poor, the poor fellow was just kept on the move, you know, all day long, every day. He wouldn't. And uh, and it was a teaching. You know, Ajahn Chah was okay because you, your your refuge has become going into this. And uh, so yes, you can do that, but. Uh, Lumpur, I guess, could see that it was uh, things were out of balance, and that he needed to to expand the range of his practice. So it wasn't just making a, a kind of bolt hole. And uh, just maybe just to finish, I'll share another story where uh, I was teaching a ten day retreat here many years ago, and um, one of the people on the retreat also again had very strong concentration and. Uh, she came into the uh, the the sangha room for the uh, an interview, and she said um, with a big smile, "I'm very angry with you." But she didn't look angry, but she said, "I'm very angry with you." And I said, oh, "Interesting comment." And she said, "You know, <clears throat> I'm angry with you because um, you've ruined my meditation." 
Well, interesting. So uh, I've been teaching a, uh, uh, a loving-kindness meditation combined with, with um, breathing. So I was using the, focusing on the, uh, on the breath at the heart center and using a kind of combination of metta practice and, and, and mindfulness of breathing. And so she said, uh, I'm a, uh, the head administrator of a large psychiatric hospital. And so my workplace is very, very intense. But I would come, I would come home from work and I'd, I'd go into my meditation room and I could just put everything away and just mm, go into this very nice, beautiful, internal, clear, bright space. Um, like I'm, I'm up in the attic with these skylights and everything is kind of pure and white and bright and holy. Uh, and and, say, and she said, "You've ruined that." <laughs> so I've uh, I've been kind of dragged down into the lower floors, and I find that the kids have been making ca I mean, there's mayhem been going on in the, in the in the lower stories of the house that I wasn't paying attention to. And uh, I thought it was an interesting way of talking about it. She said that uh, the kids have have caused, been causing chaos down in the <laughs> the lower parts of the house that I was blithely ignoring. So I had this nice, beautiful space up in my attic. And now you've kind of dragged me down into this, the, the rest of the house where all this kind of confused, difficult, uh, tangled stuff is going on. Uh, so I thought she described it very well. And I thought, well, I'm, you don't seem that upset about it. She said, well, I'm, yes, I, I am upset. I was really enjoying that. But I suppose this is worthwhile. And I thought it was, uh, it was a, a very good exchange. And uh, it was a, many years ago now, but I, I remember it. Um, and I, because I think it's, very astute of her to observe that she had made this refuge of the concentrated mind and I think dealing with her, her work life and, and uh, the intensity of that it was quite understandable to make a nice little safe bubble but also she hadn't realized the degree which she had been sort of walling everything uh, else that a lot of her life was unattended and that to really free the heart, to really arrive at a quality of, of freedom and fulfillment, then the, the, the rest of the house needed to be attended to. <laughs> so uh, uh, that, uh, um, uh, I, that is something that can easily happen. And so when people, uh, say, get over-attached to meditation retreats or over-attached to solitude or over-attached to having a, a kind of totally silent, hermetically sealed environment, then if you feel that sense of, uh, of uh, anxiously trying to keep your space or keep your retreat or stop things from getting in, notice that anxiety, notice that tension and realize that's, that's a sign. And, and then to consciously incline towards being more open to learning lessons from interaction with the world, having to be a person, perform as a personality, deal with other people and to work with their personalities and and to see what what blessings what what wisdom what uh, what really wholesome beautiful qualities come from that so i offer these thoughts for consideration this week <laughs>